It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Welcome to the Larry Kudlow Show. That's, if I get this right this week, LarryKudlowShow.com. You can live stream us all across the country, throughout the world, and including the solar system. We have a terrific following throughout the solar system. So much to do today, as almost always. I want to begin, I just have to begin with this Hunter Biden story where, you know, the New York Post argued, this goes back 17 months, that they had Hunter Biden's laptop computer, they found it in a Delaware repair shop, and the New York Times... And all these outlets, cable news, everybody in the world, including all these dummies, these spooks, these left-wing spooks, it's on the front page of the New York Post. And the people who don't get the Post, you can get it online. And um, all of Hunter's various nefarious dealings, corrupt dealings with Russia, with Ukraine, with China, with his tax returns. And everybody denied this during the campaign in 2020. Russian disinformation, they called it. Russian disinformation. There really was no computer. Facebook, YouTube, everybody said didn't exist. Of course it existed. And as the Wall Street Journal editorial put it today, the New York Post deserves a Pulitzer Prize instead of the dummies that got a Pulitzer Prize uh, for what became known as the Russian hoax, a complete hoax. President Trump was completely exonerated from many of these things. But um, I just, this is just a wonderful story. All these uh, CIA and directors of national intelligence, Michael Hayden, Panetta, James Clapper, John Brennan. Of course, James Clapper and John Brennan lied continuously before Congress. They should be busted for it, but they never did. Mike Morrell, just looking at this, it's an incredible story. CNN pundit James Clapper. Now, he was the head of, he was the director of national intelligence, if I'm not mistaken, uh, during the Obama years. And he was a big Hillary Clinton supporter. CNN pundit James Clapper headed a letter by 51 former intelligence officials in October 2020, October 2020, so that's 17 months ago, to cast doubt that Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation, quote-unquote. Even as the laptop has been confirmed again and again, none of them will apologize or admit they were wrong. And as I said, uh, all of Hunter Biden's nefarious, corrupt dealings on this laptop. I mean, Hunter Biden's going to be in a heap of trouble. He's got tax return problems, going to be indicted for that. But he will uh, be indicted for other things if anybody pursues it. Should be a special counsel, if you ask me. And, of course, his father was involved in this, uh, getting money through various circuitous lanes China money. I don't know if he got Ukraine money or not. I don't know all the story. But the story of the story is the disinformation, the fact that all these New York Times on down, all these media outlets, all these 
intelligence experts, quote unquote, who falsely discredited Hunter Biden's laptop. And um, they won't apologize. They will not say they're sorry. It's just typical how the mainstream media is just so pathetic. So pathetic. By the way, it makes me proud to be part of Fox. Fox reported this continuously, which gives me a little bit of a hook for the Fox Business uh, show, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. name of the show is Cudlow. Please dial us up. You'll enjoy it. Many of the same themes you'll hear on these Saturday shows here at uh, WABC. But it's a pathetic story. Okay, I'm not going to... We'll probably visit it later on in our Money Politics segment with Monica Crowley and Liz Peek today. Steve Moore's got a little vacation day or something, wherever he may be. But just it's just a pathetic story. And I just wanted to raise that story. It shows to all the lengths that these mainstream media people will go to deny the truth, the corruption of the, of the Bidens, father and son. I know the big guy is the president, and um, he's doing so much damage to the country, but just these things, you know, it's incredible to me the collusion that all these mainstream media outlets, the liberal left collusion against the truth, you know, the truth will set you through, uh, free if only you report it. And they're supposed to report it, but of course they don't. So they got caught with their pants down. The New York Times finally fessed up. Okay? Finally fessed up. Now, we will review the Ukrainian war story. General Jack Keane will be on at the uh, 11 a.m. hour and talk about... Um, Goings on. I want to lead with just a remarkable piece in yesterday's uh, Wall Street Journal by my friend Walter Russell Mead, Professor Walter Russell Mead, teaches school at Bayard College in uh, upstate New York. He's a part of the Hudson Institute, which is a good, strong conservative think tank. He was on the Cudlow Show on Fox Business uh, last night. We had him on a couple weeks ago. But point that he makes about all of this, you know, I'll read you, quote you directly. The past two weeks have changed the world. Mr. Putin's Russia turns out to be weaker and, UK and Ukraine stronger than many Westerners thought. And then he goes on, there is more. As big new Brzezinski put it, it cannot be stressed enough that without Ukraine, Russia ceases to be an empire. But with Ukraine, suborned and then subordinated, Russia automatically becomes an empire. Here's Mead's thought. Don't let Putin off the hook. Don't let Putin off the hook. Forget about off-ramps. The key to success is to pursue a retreating enemy. Now, I don't know if Russia is retreating right now, but I sure know that they're not winning. Are they losing? I think they are losing because they failed to take any major cities. Their strengths in the southern part of Ukraine, to be sure, and the eastern part, but they haven't taken Kiev. They haven't taken uh, uh, Lviv. And um, the Ukrainians are fighting bravely. 
for their own freedom and for the sovereignty of their country. And I would say right now, Putin, who is a despised figure on the world stage, he is a war criminal. His army has failed, the so-called Red Army. People say I shouldn't call it the Red Army, but it is the Red Army. Conscripts, young men who had no idea they were being sent to fight in Ukraine, don't want to fight. There's stories running around that they're shooting themselves in the legs to get off, that some officers have done, that they're literally with Ukrainian bullets shooting themselves in the legs in order to get out of this. The so-called 40-mile convoy going to Kiev uh, has failed. So I don't know if I would say Russia is losing, but they sure aren't winning. And I would say relative to expectations, they're losing. And so Putin, the most despised man in the world, a war criminal, Biden finally called him a war criminal. Finally. Finally. It took him two passes, uh, I guess on Tuesday when he was having his news conference. He said First he said no, then he came back and said, well, did you say is he a war criminal? Yes, he's a war criminal. And then it was used again yesterday. So better late than never. But Putin is reduced now to all these aerial bombings of the cities, of civilians, of maternity wards, of hospitals, of apartment buildings, committing crimes against humanity for which he should and must be tried in the world courts. The sanctions, the economic sanctions are by and large working. It's not 100%. It's never going to be 100%. But their currency, the ruble, has been destroyed. Their stock market is shut down. Their economy is plunging. Their inflation rate is soaring. The central bank has 635 billion some odd foreign exchange reserves. But because of sanctions on the central bank, they cannot cash in on them. Half of them are overseas. They own a lot of gold, but they can't sell the gold because gold dealers around the world are self-sanctioning, which is great. And a lot of the oil crowd is self-sanctioning. Not all, but much. Their oil output is way down. The cash they're receiving is down. We put you know, sanctions on their oil imports to the United States. Biden, of course, is always late. He's always late. This guy's like he's, he's chasing a stock, but he can never get the right bid. But whatever, Russia is in very bad shape and reduced to bombing civilians. The world hates them. It's a lesson to the Chinese. But the point is, with Walter Russell Meade, that what Putin must do now, what I beg your pardon, what Biden must do now, what Biden must do now is to make the defeat of Putin the core of his entire global foreign policy. Do not let Putin off the hook. Make Putin pay an exorbitant price. And uh, Walter Russell Mead quotes the old Prussian general from the 19th century, Karl von Clausewitz. 
key to success is to pursue a retreating enemy. When an enemy is in retreat, it is possible to inflict the greatest damage on his forces, disorganized and disheartened. And Clausewitz basically got that from Napoleon. The past two weeks would change the world. It's a fantastic article. You can get it on the Wall Street Journal's uh, op-ed pages from, from yesterday. Nothing matters more right now to the peace of the world and the security of the United States than crippling Mr. Putin's drive to rebuild an aggressive and despotic empire by waging a criminal war. That's Walter Russell Mead. Forget about, forget about global warming. Forget about Iran and, and, and giving Russia money to build a nuclear reactor in Iran. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Just take full advantage of Putin's weakness and inflict as much damage on him as we possibly can. Will Biden do that? I don't know. He's always late. His sanctions are put on too late. There's no reason, by the by, why the United States shouldn't support the transfer of these MiG airliners, these MiG fighter jets, to Ukraine, for heaven's sakes. Just, just say yes. You know, one of the problems with Biden throughout this whole period is every time Putin barks, Biden retreats underneath the nearby desk. He doesn't bark back. I mean, he needs a dose of Reagan. Remember Reagan, during the Cold War, blasting the communists, the old Soviet Union communists, Reagan called them the evil empire. And people said, oh, no, you're stirring up a hornet's nest. Don't do that. He did it. Reagan said, we win, you lose. Tear down this wall. Once in radio, Reagan's radio broadcast. Remember this? I think it was 1981. He used to have these Saturday radio broadcasts that were so great. And on one of them, Reagan, who was a master communicator, who had been a radio guy his whole life, so he starts off testing, testing. In 15 seconds, we'll bomb Moscow. I mean, that stuff is great tough. We win, you lose. Biden doesn't do any of that. Until he called uh, Putin a war criminal, he never even said anything about Putin. He should be blasting Putin left and right, and he doesn't do it. And neither do his little minions. And they should. They absolutely should. So, the title of this piece, Putin's Failure is Biden's Opportunity. Don't let, don't let Putin off. Now, I also want to touch upon, and we will review this when General Keene comes on at the top of the next hour, but I mean, just when you think the Biden administration can't get any worse, they disprove you. They hit a new low. Here's the new low, Iran. Iran. The Bidens are a party to negotiations 
with Iran to resurrect the old nuclear treaty that Trump wisely ended our participation. They are on the verge, I mean, it's a day-by-day thing of making a deal with one of America's greatest enemies. And incidentally, we're not even, we're not even, we, the United States government, the Biden government, is not even negotiating directly. We're negotiating through Russia. Through Russia. It's absolutely remarkable. Iran happens to be Israel's greatest enemy. Israel is America's greatest ally in the Middle East, maybe in the entire world. They're choosing Iran over Israel. It's incredible. And as part of this deal, listen to this. They're going to provide $10 billion to a Russian construction company that would be permitted to carve out the sanctions on Ukraine and build a nuclear facility in Iran, which they say is for peaceful purposes, but believe me, it won't be. $10 billion to Russia so they can build a nuclear system, a nuclear facility in Iran. And we would declare the Revolutionary Guard, which runs all the terrorist operations in the Middle East and elsewhere, financing Hezbollah and Hamas and Houthis, they would be reclassified not as terrorists anymore. They would lose their terrorist classification. And we give $10 billion and probably another $10 or $11 billion for the release of four hostages. We may wind up giving more money to Iran than we've given to Ukraine. Why are we doing this? It's utterly incredible. As the Iranians chant death to America and death to Israel. And they lie about their nuclear development, and they cheat, and they steal, and they won't let the United Nations or anybody else inspect their key areas. And the Revolutionary Guard military arm would be declassified. They're not terrorists. Of course, they're terrorists. It is one of the worst stories imaginable. In the middle of this Ukrainian war, at a moment when we should be taking Putin to the cleaners. We're letting them negotiate for us. We're going to give them $10 billion to build a nuclear facility. We're going to desert our great ally, Israel. Remarkable. I got to take a quick break. I'm going to take a quick break here and come back and cap this off. I'm Larry Kudlow. I mean, the Bidens hit a new low with this Iranian business. They should not let Putin off the hook and they should cease any discussions with Iran. It's utterly incredible. The worst foreign policy, maybe in the history of the United States, certainly in the last 100 years. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. We'll be right back after this. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? 
Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Just a quick note before we bring on Steve Forbes. He's going to talk about inflation problem, public enemy number one. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates by one quarter of 1%. So that's just fabulous. The CPI is 8%. The PPI is 10%. Import prices are 11%. And the Fed raised their target rate by one quarter of one point. Uh, It's kind of a joke. They're not making any moves. They're not doing anything to really curb inflation. And I raise it now as a prelude to our next guest, Steve Forbes, because... um, This is not going to end well. We are moving into a stagflation period where inflation is faster than growth. And eventually, the central bank will have to take actions. And unfortunately, sometime next year, we're probably going to find ourselves in a downturn, in a recession. So we'll talk about that with our next guest, Steve Forbes of Forbes Media and his new book about inflation. I'm Kudlow. The Iranian thing is the worst thing I have ever seen. The worst. How can Biden's deal with Iran? It's utterly incredible. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And we're going to bring on my very dear friend, the brilliant Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media. Stephen has a new book called Inflation what it is, why it's bad, and how to fix it. Steve Forbes, along with Nathan Lewis and Elizabeth Ames. Had a good visit. Uh, First of all, welcome, Steve Forbes. I haven't read the book, Steve, because you gave it to me on set at the end of our segment Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) You you, you got a fresh, fresh, fresh off the press copy. I know. I love when I brought it to you. (laughs) It was hot. The pages were warm. Uh, Your your um, your note to me was lovely, and I appreciate it very much. Uh, I will read it because it looks very cool. Uh, I'll dig into it. Thank you. Um, You know, a couple things right at the top. Um, Biden is blaming inflation on Putin. What do you what do what do you make of that? Well, you talked in your last segment about uh, the, this administration new lows, and uh, that was one of them a couple of weeks ago, uh, that uh, prices hadn't been rising before uh, uh, Biden had went to war against uh, the oil and gas industry. Uh, oil, uh, gasoline prices at the pump hadn't been rising until Putin invaded Ukraine. Come on now. This administration is falling in, and we discuss this in the book, every trap that a government that is mucking up its uh, currency goes for. And you're going to see starting talk. They're already going after oil company and gas company executives. You're going to start to see talk about price controls. You're already seeing talk about raising, uh, having a a so-called excess profits tax. And all of this is hurting an economy that should be vibrant. And given what is happening in the world, must be vibrant. We must have a counter, just as Ronald Reagan did in the 1980s. He got the bad stuff out of the way, cut taxes, reined in spending, went for more deregulation boosted military spending by uh, almost doubled it. And that's what we got to do now. But this administration, Larry, has not risen to the occasion on any front, domestic front or foreign policy. 
Yes, well, I would agree with that for sure. You know, he has a, it's a strong case of amnesia because his first 12 or 13 months is when the inflation developed. Uh, no kidding. Sure, <laughs> you know, sure the, the last few weeks, there's no question, uh, oil prices and gasoline prices, but they had been jumping uh, 40, 50% well before, and uh, that's their case of amnesia. The thing is, Steve, you know, looking at the Fed um, and their announcements on Wednesday, so they raised their target rate by one quarter of 1%. They're still buying bonds, at least through May. I mean, they're not shrinking their portfolio. They're increasing their portfolio. So they buy bonds and they pay for it by injecting cash into the economy. I mean, I would say the Fed, um, all this talk about the Fed tightening is nonsense. They haven't started to fight. Well, it's a pure pure case of economic malpractice and has been for a while. Even before COVID hit in 2020, the Fed was uh, undermining the integrity of the dollar. Then you have the economy shut down, supply chains are disrupted all over the world. You can't turn that back on with a switch. Then you have this administration gumming things up even more, starting with energy, making that uh, artificially more expensive. And now you have the Federal Reserve. They keep, as you say, printing money created. They pay for those bonds by uh, creating money out of thin air. They call up, say, Goldman Sachs and say, we want a billion dollars of treasuries. Goldman says, fine. They give them the bonds. And the Fed credits their account with money created literally out of nothing, out of the ether. It's the ultimate ATM. But the Fed knows that they're doing wrong things. But Jerome Powell wanted to be reappointed as chairman. And so what they've been doing is doing this overnight stuff called reverse repurchase agreements. All they are, in essence, doing is borrowing that money back on a 24-, 48-hour basis. A little over a year ago, uh, this gimmick was zero on the Fed balance sheet. Now, Larry, it's $1.6 trillion. Hmm. They're borrowing each night to try to keep uh, money flooding into the economy. That is just utterly unnecessary, and it's going to cause problems down the road this year and next year. They should be reducing that balance sheet instead of, as you pointing out, they're increasing it. They're still creating money and hoping that they can keep it from flooding into the economy. Uh, this is like a, a, a reservoir where you have a weak, a weak wall, and you just hope the thing doesn't flood into, into the town. It's, it's irresponsible. You know, I was thinking about this um... I mean, ultimately, inflation is the debasement in the value of the dollar. And right. there are a lot of ways to measure that. I mean, you can look uh, in the marketplace. Uh, there's a dollar exchange rate contract, the DXY, which has done relatively well. It's been fairly stable. But you remember, right. we used to talk about the price rule. Uh, you look at the dollar in relation to gold or a broad index of commodities. And basically, the dollar's been falling now for a couple of years. And the Federal Reserve, there's two things they won't look at. They're not looking at a commodity price rule, and they're not looking at the balance sheet money supply relationship that pushes in liquidity. So, I mean, if you look at the wrong targets, Steve, if you look at the wrong measures, you're going to come up with the wrong policies. Well, the whole way of looking at the world is wrong, and that's why for 40 years uh, the dollar has been uh, gradually declining. Yes, it has rallies from time to time, and the reason, by the way, the dollar is doing well in that index you just mentioned 
is because other countries are doing it worse than we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, yeah, we're bad, but others are even worse. Not not a very confidence building uh, uh, thing to look at. So the the thing the thing with the with the Fed is that you and you know this. It's called the Phillips curve. It's not a baseball pitch. It's named after an economist who posited, and the Fed believes this that prosperity causes inflation. So if you want low inflation. You have to have higher unemployment and a slower economy. If you want low inflation, uh, excuse me, if you want to have lower unemployment, you have to have higher inflation. Uh, history shows that's a nonsense formula, but the Fed believes it. And the danger here, getting to your point about 2022 and a slowdown possibly in, in 2023, is the very fact the Fed doesn't know how to fight inflation except by depressing the economy. They won't say it, and that's why Powell put it off until he gets uh, re- reconfirmed as for another four-year term. But uh, that's the danger. They don't know how to fight. There are doctors who don't know how to fight the disease. They're bleeding the patient, as they used to do in days of old. Of course, that got rid of the pain in the patient because it got rid of the patient. But they're, they're guilty of economic malpractice. They don't know how to fight the disease. You know, I'm looking, Steve, I just pulled up a chart of gold. So gold... <clears throat> Gold closed yesterday at 1,921, 1921. If you go back a couple of years, the gold price in 2018 and 2019 was around 1,250. So right. now it's 1,900 and change. Now that's a devaluation of the dollar, in effect. I mean, those are the, the, the seeds of inflation have been planted uh, in 2020, as you say, and continued in 2021. But again, if you don't look at the right metrics, you're not going to understand what you're supposed to do. And I, you know, that your other point there, I think Powell was catering to Biden in 2021. I think you're absolutely right. He, you know, the Fed was conducting an emergency monetary policy when the emergency was long over the economy was rising. And then what about the, all this government spending and deficit spending? That's got to play into it. Well, it plays into it because you have to finance it. And uh, we, they know that we know that one way they want to do it is by economy killing taxes, which would have hurt revenues, not increase them. And the other thing is that so that's why the Fed was doing also the buying. Uh, they the government was running up these deficits and they wanted to keep interest rates artificially low. And so as a result, the Federal Reserve bought an unprecedented amount of the debt. Uh, they, 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 at some one point, Larry, over 50, 60 percent of the new debt was being bought by the Federal Reserve. And that's what you expect in third world, what they used to call banana republic uh, <laughs> economies, where uh, you, you're always cheapening your currency by having the central bank uh, gin up some more money. And that's what the Fed has been doing. So uh, the Fed uh, has this conceit that they're so smart that they can keep this extra money out of the economy from uh, flooding into the economy through paying interest rates on reserves through these gimmicks like the reverse repurchase agreements and junk like that. And uh, they're they're playing with fire. And it's just going to have a bad ending. I can't give you a scenario what's going to trigger a, a, a bad ending. But, you know, when you do this kind of nonsense, Bad things are going to happen. And one thing you've hit on it, and we've hit on it for years, money is a measure of value. Right. And we don't float the clock each day. We don't float the ruler each day, 12 inches in a foot one day, 6 inches in the next. And you buy a gallon of gasoline, 
Uh, That doesn't change in size each day. Money is a measure of value. And these people don't get it. The fundamental purpose of the Fed, they don't get. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very important. And again, the idea of a price rule uh, to measure money properly is almost a lost art. And I guess we should try to revive it. Again, gold tells the story. Or you can just look at all the commodities. Uh, It's the same story. The dollar has slumped very badly the last few years. And that was an indicator that inflation was coming. And I think this will not end well. Uh, we're talking to Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media, and Steve's new book called Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. You know, Steve, actually, inside the Fed, there's a lot of dissent now. I noticed, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you didn't have any for a long time, but I noticed my friend Jim Bullard, who's the head of the St. Louis Fed, uh, he actually dissented from the one quarter. And also Chris Waller, uh, who was at the St. Louis Fed, he's now on the Federal Reserve Board. Uh, he's, I mean, they, they have to take big steps, not small steps. I mean, 50 basis points, 100 basis points to well, turn expectations. Well, to an extremely important point, and that is why are they setting interest rates? Oh. You know, interest rates are a price of money. It's like rent. What, what rent are you paying for the money? Well, when you go in an apartment, pay rent when you borrow the money in effect you're renting it and the idea that they can manipulate uh, use price controls on the price of money as a way to control the economy with over 300 million people doing literally billions of transactions a day is hubris on the was on steroids it's preposterous why are they doing and that's what i hope one thing this book will help do is get a debate why is the fed trying to guide think they can guide an economy it's uh, and it's accepted by almost everyone. It can't be done. Quantitative easing is all about meddling with interest rates, isn't it? Yes, it is. And uh, they think that by meddling like that, they can guide the economy like you uh, have cruise control on a car on a highway. We're not machines. And all the only question really, Larry, is how much damage will they do? We have periods where they do very little damage. But we have periods where they can do a lot of damage. And the Federal Reserve should only be active when there's a real crisis, a real panic or some disaster. Then, as the British showed us 150 years ago, you'd be lender of last resort. You come in and make sure the system doesn't fall apart. But otherwise, keep the money stable. And by mm. golly, the economy will work better. Hello. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and one, one statistic I want to leave you with. When we were on the Bretton Woods gold standard from the end of World War II to the early uh, late 60s, early 70s, the average growth rate in this economy was 4.2%. Mm. Since we blew up the system, it's gone down to 2.7. Mm. And over 50 years, that means the economy today would have been 50%, 60% bigger if we'd kept our historic growth rates. Oh, wow. That's a great point. That's a great point. I mean, basically, right now, they should be pulling money out of the system until gold and commodity prices start coming down, down, down. That's what they ought to do. And, 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 and stabilize it. You make a very good point that the Fed started undermining the dollar uh, to three years ago, four years ago. It hit in late in 2019 and 2020, which uh, really juiced up the inflation. Gold hasn't done much in recent times. But you know, with that kind of liquidity they have of, of flooding on their balance sheets, it's going to hit. So you're right. Do it now. Less You do it now, you're going to have less pain later. And again, the world crisis, we don't need a bad economy. 
And yeah, and the other thing is with this oil price, uh, they don't want to monetize that. I mean, this is a, the mistake in the '70s was that they accommodated and then they went off the Bretton Woods gold exchange, and then inflation took off, and right. oil prices took off, and they kept postponing any tightening. So in effect, they accommodated it, they financed it. You don't want to do that. You don't want one price increase to spread to the entire price index. I mean, this is a time for them to guard against it. And uh, that's another reason they should be withdrawing money from the system. But the point is they're not, Steve. You know, I mean, I'm amused. I mean, look, don't, don't get me wrong. I always like it when stock prices go up. But I think one reason stocks went up so much this past week is a sigh of relief that the Fed's not going to really tighten money. <laughs> I mean, I think and, the, and, mar and, and the market a, and doesn't fear it. And it's a short-term illusion. Uh, uh, the, what uh, the idea that uh, oh, if the indexes are going up, all is well. Uh, first of all, as we should have learned of going back in history in the late '60s, the index yeah had uh, ups and downs, but it was uh, starting to flatten out. And then the inflation hit. You can have nominal increases in indexes, but the question is: is are those real increases, or are you falling for the money illusion? That's why, not to get investment advice, we're in a period where you better look at companies that pay real dividends mm. and have real cash flows because uh, uh, sky-high hope uh, pie, uh, that you're going to get a big pie in the future. Ain't going to be that way for a while. So the Bidens really don't want the Fed to take the necessary steps. I mean, that's oh, what this— for an election, and then yeah. they got 2024, and so they keep postponing it, and then you find you have a terminal disease. <laughs> that's that's malpractice, economic malpractice. Steve Forbes, you think Biden's going to run again? I don't think he's going to be capable of running. Mm. And uh, and one of the intriguing questions is why, after 17 months, did the New York Times and others begin to say, hey, that laptop of uh, Hunter Biden was real? Why now? I think – What, uh, what, what I, do you I, think I, they're turning against I, I think they're turning against him. Mm -hmm. And uh, we know who's standing in the wings, which uh, makes oh. us uh, pray that uh, God uh, loves America. <laughs> <laughs> I want um, there was a Wall Street Journal poll this week. Fifty two percent of likely voters don't think he's going to run. Fifty two percent. Only something like twenty five percent think he's going to run. I want Joe Manchin to run in the Democratic primaries. Well, the thing is, if they have an adult running, I think we'll still win. But that way you get a real debate. And uh, instead of just saying hope that uh, the worst doesn't happen. And I think a lot of Democrats are in mood for a real adult. All right, Steve Forbes, the name of the book is Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It with Steve Forbes. Nathan Lewis, by the way, is a great gold scholar. I used to read his stuff on gold, Steve. He's fascinating. And Elizabeth he, 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 is, he is the best. And, yeah. uh, and that's, that's why we take some of the positions we do in the book. And yeah. it's high time we get to the question, how do we make America truly grow again? We've done it before, and now we need it more than ever. All right, Steve Forbes, thank you ever so much, folks. Uh, go out thank and buy you, the Larry. book. Yep. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Larry Kudlow.
From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Uh, welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow here. You know, the stuff Steve Forbes is talking about is very important. The value of our money is so essential to the smooth workings of the economy. I mean, if money is worthless, people are going to start investing in unproductive assets. There'll be a lot of speculation, financial engineering. But you've got to have, you know, the, 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 the money in your wallets and pocketbooks has to be stable so the inflation, is sta- inflation rate is stable. I mean, what's happening now is although the economy is rising in nominal terms, as Steve Forbes mentioned, the inflation is so significant that, for example, wage increases are not really wage increases when they're adjusted for inflation. So real wages after inflation are actually falling. I mean, it looks good on paper. That's the nominal part. But when you adjust for the price increases, then your wages are actually declining. And then when your wages are declining, people don't want to work. And by the way, the same thing will be true. It's not there yet. But uh, business profits, which have been strong, but inflation cuts into that. Inflation erodes the value of business profits. And eventually, businesses will stop. They'll stop investing. They'll stop expanding. And they'll stop hiring workers because... In real terms, ex-inflation, they'll realize they're losing money. And that's what corrodes the inner workings of the economy. And so that's why inflation is such a big deal. And I think the fact that the Biden administration is so unaware of this. I mean, you've got Democrat economists, Democrat, good ones like Larry Summers of Harvard or Jason Furman of Harvard uh, have warned the Biden administration, time and again, going back a year ago with their big uh, so-called rescue package, $2 trillion, they said, don't do it. It's going to cause inflation. That's when the inflation really started to take hold. It wasn't because of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, and it wasn't the most recent rise. I mean, actually, gasoline prices and uh, world oil prices have been rising for a year, well before Putin went into Ukraine. And the reason for that is deficit spending and money creation and reducing the value of the dollar when it's compared to broad indexes like gold or commodity prices. And it's a shame because this is not going to end well. Now, you know, I don't want Biden. I mean, I want to see Republicans sweep. I think the cavalry's coming. I'm hoping the GOP sweeps in November. And I'm hoping the GOP picks up the White House in 2024. But I don't want the country to fall into a, some kind of deep in recession. And inflationary recessions, which is sometimes called stagflation, is the worst of all worlds. I don't want America to be hurt. I mean, I want us to defeat Biden's ideas and policies, but I don't want working folks to have to pay for all that. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, General Jack Keane is going to help us out on Ukraine and Iran and China. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stick around. Much, much more to do this morning. 
It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com. You can live stream us around the country, throughout the world, and the solar system, so you won't miss a thing. And we welcome back to the show General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman, Institute for the Study of War, Fox News, senior strategic analyst, and Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. General Keane, welcome back, sir. I know you're awful busy, but you've done great service for all of us in your analysis. Um, General Keane, the top story in the Wall Street Journal webpage today is White House says Biden warns Xi of consequences if Beijing supports Russia on Ukraine. So, okay, um, it has been reported that Russia is uh, short of supplies and material. Uh, Financially, they're in trouble. So Biden has two hours with Xi yesterday. Now, I I don't know what, I mean, the the readouts from this thing are um, uh, uninformative, is how I'll put it. And I'll just say that Biden warned Putin before the invasion of severe consequences, that that didn't seem to work. So I wanted to get your your thinking on this. Is there any intel that you've picked up? And, and you know, do you think she is going to help Russia or not help Russia? Yeah, well, certainly the administration hasn't, you know, given us any, anything tangible, you know, in terms of that meeting, other than they, they had the meeting. Um, I do think the administration did the right thing in, in – in revealing the, the classified information they had that they had picked up, that Russia had sought assistance and China appeared wanting to give them that assistance. I also think the administration probably knows a little bit more in detail of what Russia was requiring. I mean, in general, it said military and economic, but I think they they have a pretty good feel for what some of the specifics are uh, in doing that. I mean, clearly, a, a, President Xi is in a position here uh, where he's re- trying to recover from COVID. His economy has slowed down. Uh, he, he's become something of an international pariah himself over over COVID. There's been more international pushback against him mm. you know, since since he's been in charge for 10 years now than he's ever had before. Uh, all that said, uh, I'm, I'm convinced that he's dead serious about this strategic partnership, uh, Larry. It means it means a lot to him. Obviously, uh, Russia needs China more than uh, China needs Russia. But nonetheless, it, it gives them an axis and a sphere of influence working together to push back against the international world order, which is clearly what they're, they're both attempting to, to change. And uh, obviously, President Xi also has, has got to be stunned by uh, Russia's poor performance here and, uh, and and how much time it's taken, the casualties they're suffering. And also, uh, you know, Putin himself being labeled as a war criminal um, and, and becoming a, a huge global international pariah. That may give him pause, but I don't think it's going to undermine the relationship. And he's heading into the National Party Congress, Larry, in the fall. And I think any admission on their part or any distance that they take to try to diminish the partnership that they entered into would bring President Xi's judgment into question uh, going into that National Party Congress. And what the Chinese Communist Party, who are propping him up, 
They want complete unity and solidification around President Xi when he goes into that Congress because he's they're going to enshrine him. So mm. I, I don't see him creating any daylight here, uh, you know, based on what President Biden is uh, is pushing. Uh, not. I don't have any feel for what the the military request, which I I find surprising that that Putin is making. But certainly we we've got a stick here, Larry. I mean, secondary sanctions on China. I mean, you've worked on these yourself, uh, and, and you know that that, that could be very impactful, for, particularly uh, for an economy that has slowed down. So, so certainly we we have something to, to say here, and actually more importantly, something to do. Well, it's interesting to me. General Keene, it's interesting that the Bidens haven't actually come out and defined consequences. Now, I presume that you're right. They're talking about some form of economic sanctions. Uh, Now, during the Trump administration, we slapped on substantial tariffs on China to bring it to the trade negotiating table. Those tariffs still exist, by the way, $350 billion, uh, which has helped to slow down their economy quite a bit. But I'm just wondering whether the Bidens are going to come out and say that they're looking at more economic sanctions. You know, I presume you're not talking about military actions, and it's all going to be in the economic sphere. But they're not saying that. And so I, I don't know. It's, it's sort of – it's just – it's this thing that, you know, Biden said the same thing. We're going to have severe consequences. He said that to Putin, and Putin invaded Ukraine anyway. I just don't know what any of this means. And if what you say is right, and I suspect you're right, China is going to stay with Russia, then China will help Russia prolong the war or additional adventurism. Yeah, I I mean, I have the same concern that you have about this administration right from the beginning. uh, They have a tendency to play a very weak hand. And then if things get uh, worse, then they... They up the ante a little, but even then they, they take incremental steps. And and we've seen that right from the outset in, in dealing with Putin when there were 70,000 on the border in March, mm. 90 days into the administration. And what did we do? Uh, the Biden administration delayed the shipment of arms and munitions to him, which actually was put together by the previous administration. President Trump's national security team did it and delayed it. And they stated the reason because they didn't want to provoke they delayed it again. Another shipment they delayed in the fall when there were 150 to 170 thousand there. And this is this has been a a pattern. And and there's no there's no reason for us to suspect that this pattern is any different in dealing with China. Uh, that we're not putting all of our cards on a table. I don't believe we ever put the cards on a table with Putin. We talked to him about severe consequences a paddle line that the administration uses. But I I doubt seriously whether we went down the list and said, this is what we fully intend to do uh, to you. Uh, And and that's the way they've operated. They put diplomacy first uh, with a weak hand, which certainly undermines the very diplomacy that they're trying to achieve. I mean, you know, during that whole period in 2018, 2019, and early 2020, but it was mostly 2019, we negotiated, we, the Trump administration, negotiated with China over a trade deal. I will say Trump, and I'm a free trader, 
General. I don't like tariffs, but with respect to China, the only what language they seem to understand, and Trump would just slam them with tariffs. And they didn't like that. And their economy suffered from those tariffs. All right. And I just wish the Bidens would be as tough and, you know, it's like do something. Don't just keep saying there's going to be consequences. Do something. International diplomacy has to be backed up with some teeth, some place, General. That's what I'm saying. It's what I learned with the China experience on trade. And it's like, here we go again. I don't know what Biden said. I have no idea what Biden said to Xi, whether he talked about trade sanctions or banking sanctions. You know, China has a very weak and small Nothingheimer banking system, for heaven's sakes. We could cut them off. Uh, (laughs) I don't know what he said, but I just hate to see the same language and, as you noted, the same pattern. It's too little, too late. Too little, too late. Yeah, I think they should... We don't know what they talked about, but certainly specifying what's going to happen to them would have been critical. Also, the fact that, I mean, you've got to tell President Xi right to his face that the world is labeling uh, Putin as a war criminal because he's committing indisputable war crimes. And if you're going to provide him finances and military means to carry out his war crimes, that means you're associating yourself with a war criminal. Right. You're going to be right. an international pariah yourself. Right. That's a great point. Right. Why doesn't and, he just and, say that publicly? And just nail him with it, you yes. know, and, and, and then publicly say, this is what I, I told the, you know, President Xi. The other thing is, you know, Putin is waving around the possibility of using chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. Mm. And, uh, and certainly that he's doing that for intimidation purposes. But, given who he is, we have to take those things seriously. And certainly President Biden should have put that on the table with President Xi, who Mm. cannot be interested in anything like that Mm. uh, in terms of the world order and how destabilizing something like that could be. That takes away all of his strategic objectives if we're going to wind up with that kind of a WMD exchange. Mm. And, And you got to assume that she has some impact on Putin and use that uh, in terms of what Putin is doing and his recklessness, you know, in talking about uh, some, something to that to that degree. And I hope he put Taiwan on the table. Mm-hmm. I mean, to have a conversation for two hours almost, even through a translator, and not bring up Taiwan and his and his aggressive behavior in the region and indicate unequivocally that we would come and defend Taiwan in the event of any military activity that he's conducting. And also, I I would put together a package uh, for Taiwan as quickly as we could and send it in there. I'm talking about a military package to, to send a clear message that while we're involved in, in Ukraine and trying to support the Ukrainians, certainly, uh, against Russia, uh, we are not so distracted that we're taking our eye off the ball here when it comes to Taiwan. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, here too troubles me. The Biden administration has been somewhat ambiguous about Taiwan. At one point, Biden said something to the effect that if they came, if the, if China came into Taiwan, we would bring in our Marines and our Navy. But then it was completely walked back, and I've never heard that talk since then. Uh, 
I, I mean, I, you got to. These are red lines, General Keene. You know, red lines. We got to draw red lines. And the other point I was just thinking about, as you were saying, you know, we need to give them more assistance, military assistance. We need to increase our defense budget much more, much more. You know, three and a half percent of GDP with the dangerous world here is probably not nearly enough. We have to put much more resources into defense. That may be politically and politically unpopular at this moment, but Biden should do it and then sell it to the country. I think the country might even back him on it. Yeah, I think so. I agree with that. I mean, we've known for some time it's underfunded and we're trying to work uh, within the parameters of the pushback. Uh, from the Democrats, but what we really got to put on the line and on the table, what is actually the requirement mm. to be able to push back against these two powers that are now in a strategic alliance and they are our adversaries and they're threatening the global world order as we know it. And we have to have effective military deterrence against them. Diplomacy is not enough. Mm. They respect mm. strength. And we, and we've said many times we're outgunned and outmanned right now today in the Indo-Pacific region dealing with the, the, the Chinese, which is the most rapid growing military in, in the world today. And obviously we have to increase our deterrence in NATO as a result of what, what Putin is doing, doing here. And we cannot do that at the numbers we're dealing with uh, in the defense budget, even with the plus up uh, mm. that they gave. It's not sufficient to get us to where we need to be. You're absolutely right about that, Larry. And and I think the other thing you're right about is there will be support for it. I think so. I'm looking at polls. The, the, the ground is shifting. And I think the country sees the dangers of Putin and the dangers of Xi. All, the world has changed a lot in the last month or two. And I think uh, the country sees that. Um, General Keene, I want to just shift gears um, I'm looking through the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I'm looking at the website, and I'm looking. I, I have the paper. Um, there is not one story anywhere about an impending deal with Iran, and is blowing my mind. And it not only, <laughs> first of all, Russia is negotiating on our behalf. Then there's talk about a $10 billion carve-out for a Russian construction company to build a nuclear facility. They say it would be for civil purposes, but I don't believe that. And we are turning against Israel in favor of Iran. We're also turning against Saudi Arabia. I know that's a somewhat checkered story, but they're still our allies. They hate uh, Iran. The Iranian story is an incredible story, and no one wants to cover it or talk about it. Yeah, it, it's really quite extraordinary and to think that we're just in full pursuit of this deal, despite what is happening in Ukraine, and despite the fact that Russia and and Iran are aligned, uh, is it, it, really quite quite extraordinary. And and every indication is is when the administration came in, they said they were going to. They wanted to renegotiate the deal, and they made overtures that we were going to lengthen the deal. This is in terms of the sunset clauses, uh, which kick in at 10 and 15 years. And then we were going to strengthen it, and they wanted to bring ballistic missiles into it in terms of restrictions and malign behavior in terms of curbing it. And that is off the table. We're actually talking about a deal that 
is worse than the 2015 deal. And why? They, they seem to just be obsessed with having to make this deal. Mm-hmm. And they dismiss they dismiss uh, what Trump did. They said, well, the uh, maximum sanctions failed. Maximum sanctions didn't fail. What, what the Iranians were doing, uh, their economy uh, was suffering. The Iranians were waiting out the election. Uh, and the Trump team certainly knew that. If, if, if the Trump team was reelected, I think we would have seen a different kind of negotiation going on. But that didn't happen. And what did the Biden team do? Instead of building on the maximum sanctions that were out there, instead of building on the fact that Qasem Soleimani was killed in January of 2020, which really put the Iranians back on their heels and the Arabs significantly applauded that and said, oh, my, the Trump administration is dead serious about this. They were 100 percent behind that. What did they do? They began to stop enforcing the Trump sanctions Mm. almost immediately. Uh, Who was the first one to know that? The Iranians and the American people. Were they told that? No. So what a weekend we began to play in the first 90 days of the Biden administration by not only reaching out and saying we want a deal, but by not enforcing the sanctions that have been posed on, which would they could use as leverage to get a better deal. Hmm. So we're heading to a disaster here. We're going to put billions and billions of dollars, Larry, into the hands of the of the Iranians, likely take the IRGC, which is who runs their proxy wars and their terrorist programs, give them billions of dollars and take them off the foreign terrorist list at the same time. Hmm. I mean, it's astounding mm. in terms of the irresponsibility that uh, that we're dealing with. Here. I don't, I don't, I don't, General. I don't even remotely understand their thinking here. Honestly, what's the? Is there a principle involved? What, I mean, what is this? I guess we're running out of time. We're always running out of time. I'll leave it there, General Jack Keen, wonderful friend, my mentor on all these things. Thank you, sir. And we'll talk some more on TV as the week goes on. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Just to put a wrap on the discussion with General Keene, who was such a brilliant guy, and has taught me so much. Uh, before I went back into office and during and after, this Iranian story, I mean, literally, uh, I'm looking at the front section of the Wall Street Journal, the print edition. There's not a single story about Iran, and there's nothing about Iran uh, on the website page. I mean, this is uh, incomprehensible that at particularly this moment in time, uh, vis-a-vis our uh, difficulties with Putin and Xi, their client state in the Middle East is Iran. Now, it's also Syria, but Iran is much, much, much more powerful militarily than Syria. But why in the world would we want to provide Iran with any relief whatsoever? I mean, they're liable to get over $25 billion worth of assistance. I don't know. The econo- as, as General Keene said, the economic sanctions are being lifted. We don't know much about that. There have been no reports. There's a lot of money at stake. 
money that will be transferred from frozen accounts back to Iran. I mean, it could be much more than $25 billion. It'll be much more than we're providing Ukraine. The other point is, this business about the Russian construction company that will get a carve-out from the Ukrainian sanctions, uh, the Russian sanctions for Ukraine, they'll get a carve-out to build a $10 billion nuclear facility. They say it's for civil purposes. That's just utter nonsense. Nobody can trust the Iranians on that. And, of course, our great ally is Israel. Iran keeps chanting death to Israel. And Iran keeps chanting death to America. Iran are bad guys. We don't, we don't need to be helping them anytime, but especially now. I mean, this will be one of the greatest foreign policy blunders in the history of this great country of ours. It is inconceivable to me. We're going to take a quick break and come back to the domestic economy on the other side with Grover Norquist. I'm Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. One of the most, uh, I, this is an odd thing to say because he's labored in the vineyards for so many years, but one of the most underrated people, but very, very important as an apostle of limited government and low tax reform is our next guest, my good friend Grover Norquist, who was founder and president of Americans for Tax Reform. Grover, I just want to say that, okay? I, I, I don't know if... Everybody appreciates the work you've done down through these many years, but I appreciate it. How's that? Well, I thank you, Larry. Thank you. <laughs> it's my great pleasure. Anyway, Grover, there's a couple things on my mind this morning. Thank you for doing this on a Saturday morning. We appreciate it. Uh, Americans for Tax Reform, great, um, great uh, organization. I just want to spend a moment on this um, uh, omnibus appropriations bill that passed last week. Uh, in the midst of war and inflation and every other thing, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, we covered it on the TV show, but um, a couple things here. N- n- number one, it was a big bill, one and a half trillion dollars. Uh, no attempts to cut domestic spending. No attempts to cut. We never cut domestic spending anymore. Both parties are guilty. A whole gaggle of Republicans voted for this damn thing. The other thing, Grover, is earmarks are back i thought we buried earmarks i thought you buried earmarks and steve moore buried earmarks and they're back and republicans voted for earmarks in the senate not so much in the house but in the senate how is this possible grover it's like you know with with multi-trillion dollar deficits we're going backwards well we are uh first of all that the democrats held the increase in defense spending that we need thanks to the Soviet Union, Russia's new misbehavior. Uh, And they said, oh, we'll only give you money for Ukraine and for defense if you give us the same amount of money for social welfare spending, never mind the several trillions of dollars we've thrown into the air on welfare. So they really held the defense budget hostage. So that's Mm. why some Republicans end up voting. That's why why the defense budget costs so much, because you have to pay $2.00. Uh, of taxes in government to get one dollar of actual, um, <laughs> and they did That's this right. to us back during the Reagan years uh, as as well. On earmarks, earmarks really are the currency of corruption. Mm. You give someone an earmark to get them to vote for a bill that they'd otherwise oppose. So you buy bad votes. The Republican who goes, oh, 
well, I'm going to get this bridge for my district, and it's too much money. But basically, you you buy votes with those earmarks, and it leads to corruption. I mean, the reason why some congressmen end up in trouble is they get paid to get an earmark. You don't you don't get paid to vote for an overall budget. You get paid cash to vote for an earmark, and it's very corrupting, and it's a very bad idea. And I'm very proud of the many Republicans who brought us to know earmarks. Uh, Jeff Flake of mm. Arizona was a hero. Coburn was a hero. A lot of the Republicans made this happen. Wouldn't have happened without the Republican fight there. We need to get back in the harness uh, and, and get rid of those earmarks for all, for all time. I know. I mean, who was it? I don't know. Somebody said this on the TV show this week, but the Republican Senate conference is still on the record as opposing earmarks, and yet so many of them voted for the earmarks. So they're voting against... Yeah, they voted for the bill that had the earmarks. Now, the Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, he put no earmarks in, whereas Schumer put all sorts of stuff in. So Mm. there there is a difference between the two parties. At the end of the day, a lot of those earmark things got in, just most of them were for deeds. Wow. Well, I'm glad to hear Mitch McConnell didn't. So that's all right. That's good. I didn't and, know that, Grover. I did not Boehner, know that. The old, the old Republican Speaker Boehner never took an earmark his entire life. Yeah, that's right. I knew that. I knew that. Yeah. I mean, look, among other things, uh, the numbers may not be as gigantic, but earmarks do increase spending. I mean, let's face it. I think the number was $8 billion in this bill. Yeah, but, but, but I would argue the damage of earmarks is not – the $8 billion. It's the $8 billion which purchased the votes for the $1.5 trillion. Right, right. So they convinced right. people to vote for a larger bill than they'd otherwise vote for. Well, I'm just saying it's a worthy conversation because I didn't want it to go unnoticed. And I keep raising it on the shows. And we just can't let this happen. I mean, you know, I was talking to Newt about this, Newt Gingrich. And yeah. we... You know, at some point, Grover, we have to come up with we conservatives, limited government supporters, supply siders. We have to come up with a plan about a balanced budget. All right. I mean, a a balanced budget the right way by limiting or freezing or cutting domestic spending and taxing and regulating. So we will spend less and grow the economy more and let the Laffer bring in those revenues. Yeah. But we, we've lost the train of that, yeah. we, haven't we? I mean, there's, no one's no, talking no, about Larry, that. Larry, here's, here's the good news, Larry. We have that plan. It was the Paul Ryan plan. It passed the House four times during the Obama years, passed the Senate once. Of course, Obama was going to sign it. What it did was he took all the welfare programs, not Social Security and Medicare, where people pay money in and, and pay for some of it, but the stuff, the aid to families with dependent children, uh, food stamps, uh, all of uh, the, all of the money that goes and just hands it to somebody because, hi, I'm here. I need money. Give me money. Uh, housing subsidies, those sorts of things. You block grant those to the states. So in the 50 states, if mm. you got $10 billion last year, you get $10 billion this year, and it grows no faster than inflation. That alone, over time, bends down the cost curve to where you not only – balance the budget, you, you, you go out 78 years, you pay down the debt. I mean, it, it really, it's, it's slow, it's steady. Uh, and what you have is 50 states, 40 of whom will seriously work to keep their spending down. The other 10 will career off into bankruptcy. Sorry about that. 
California and New York. <laughs> but the, 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 the 40 states can show how to do it. That's what happened when Clinton signed the welfare reform bill, which block granted aid to families with dependent children, now TANF. Um, and that meant that some states, Wyoming dropped its welfare spending more than half. Most states had about a 30 percent savings. And in Hawaii, it was the only state that got worse. I, I've still never figured out what Hawaii did. But everybody else figured out how to get the money to people who needed it. You know, if you get a block grant, you care about waste, fraud and abuse because now it's your money. Mm-hmm. But you don't care about Washington's money being wasted in your state if it's not your program because because not your money. You don't get to keep it if, if you can save money and do it better. So we have the vision. That is there. The Republicans have voted for it. Nobody's lost an election. And mm. that's what we missed by one vote when McCain voted no on a bill that everybody thought of as getting oh. rid of Obamacare. But much more important was it block grant Medicaid. That was the savings in that right. bill over right, right, time. Right. So, Grover, where is the Ryan plan? Is there a document? Um, it, well, it, it's it's just as I explained it. They're, they're the budgets each year. I went. To, I called Ryan uh, years ago and said, uh, Hernando de Soto, the great Peruvian economist who works on property rights, is in town. He'd like to meet with you. And Ryan said, I can meet with you in two months for half an hour. <laughs> two months. <laughs> is, you know what are you talking? He said, Grover, I am spending a half an hour with every single member of the Republican caucus hmm. to explain this year's version of the Ryan plan. The only thing that changes is the actual numbers. So the concept every year he met with everybody. This is why a Republican plan to dramatically reform government mm-hmm. and reduce spending. Every Republican felt very comfortable voting for it again and again and again because they really understood it. And Ryan told me, Paul Ryan, before he was speaker and then a speaker, he said, I won't let anyone co-sponsor my bill Mm. until I'm convinced they understand it. Because I don't want somebody going out and getting on TV going, I'm for this bill and and, and misrepresenting Mm. what's in it. Uh, And so we can go back to that level of discipline. Uh, But it'd be interesting. You might want to have Ryan on to walk through how yep. he would see it at this point. Have you talked to Newt? Because Newt's pushing the, the balanced budget concept. And this oh, sounds like... Yeah, I'm I mean, for a balanced budget, but the only way to really get there is to reform government smaller rather than slash, because right. you know, slashing is you cut muscle as well as fat, and people will point out that you made a mistake here or there. I'd rather let the 50 states compete, just as we are on tax reform. We're seeing massive tax reduction. 12 states are moving towards zero income tax. That's going to force, in state income tax, that's going to force the bad states to be less bad and eventually to get better. Yeah, let's talk about state tax cuts. Um, The state flat tax movement grows. That was an editorial in the journal. Georgia is the latest to suggest a reform with a single rate on income. Uh... Kim Reynolds of Iowa has produced a flat tax reform. I think Arizona uh, is producing. Arizona, 2.5%. 2.5%. And as soon as they get there in about a year, they want to go to zero. Uh, Ducey has really uh, moved things there. Uh, Senator uh, J.D. Mesnard is the guy who is driving it through the Senate, the 2.5% flat tax. Um, And uh, Majority Leader in the the House, uh, Ben Toma, uh, are the two guys, along with the governor, who brought it was eight percent by the way because of the 
stupid yeah. initiative that was, turned out to be unconstitutional. But now it's going to 2.5% this next year. There's an effort now actually to take that to 2.3%, even lower, and then to zero. Uh, Ways and Means uh, Chairman Shaw Blackman in, drove this uh, in uh, Georgia, uh, and it looks there. We're talking about taking their top rate of 5.75% 5, down to 5 and a quarter. Although I would remind the nice people in Georgia that getting down to a flat tax of 5.25 is still higher than Massachusetts's flat tax. Okay, mm. um, so they need to go further in Georgia, but that is a really nice step in the right direction. Um, as you said, Iowa, their, their corporate rate was once over was once 12 percent, mm-hmm. and it's now going down to five and a half. Got to remember to take those corporate rates down as well as the individual rates each time. Yep, yep, that's. You know, Kim Reynolds is a good governor, Grover. She's amazing, a good governor. Amazing she, stuff. Um, and they've got a, a Senate leadership there, Jack Whitford. Um, hmm. he he's talking about, okay, nice to go to a flat tax, but on to zero. And uh, the governor's not opposed to that, but but the uh, Jack Whitmer, Whitmer rather Whitver, that's a B, Whitver, um, is pushing to go, let's go to zero. And I know the governor thinks that's a good idea, too. And then um, there's an editorial in the journal, Tax Cut Showdown in Michigan. Um, Governor Whitmer, who's got to be one of the worst, this Gretchen Whitmer. One Absolutely. Of worst, one of the worst governors in America. However, uh, the legislature passed a bill that would cut the individual income tax rate to 3.9 from four and a quarter. So uh, how's that going to turn out? Well, she vetoed it. Um, It passed. Eric Nesbitt was driving this in the Senate. I was actually talking to him this morning. Senator uh, Eric Nesbitt was driving it in the Senate. They had a really good bill. The House watered it down a little bit, um, but it's a two and a half, you know, two and a half trillion dollar tax cut. Billion, billion, billion. I'm sorry. It's the state. States waste billions. The federal government wastes trillions. (laughs) Billions. Um, and, And Whitmer says, oh, no, we can't have a tax cut. It's not sustainable. This from the governor who took all that one-time spending that Washington threw at her and is trying to turn it into permanent spending. Completely uh, not sustainable, but she doesn't mind unsustainable spending. She's just against tax cuts. She's even against uh, reducing the gasoline tax temporarily in her state. Mm. She's really bad news for Michigan. They, they could be doing so much better. Grover, when do we get a flat tax reform in New York and New Jersey? <laughs> And Connecticut. Um, well, we are finally getting New Hampshire four years from now to be a completely no income tax state. They, mm. they don't tax wages, but they still tax dividends and interest. But they're phasing that down in four years to mm. zero. Mm. Maine, if Governor LePage comes back, he's running for re-election. I love Le- again. He was governor. He, he's, he's terrific. On, let's he's go terrific. To zero. Yeah. He wants to phase that down to zero. So we're beginning to get states surrounding New York as we move forward. Remember, Pennsylvania is a flat rate tax. Uh, uh, Indiana just had some significant tax reduction. We, we have 12 state, eight states with no income tax and 12 that are committed to going there, meaning the governor's for it or the state legislative leadership's for it. They've taken some tax cuts in that direction. North Carolina, uh, six years from now, there'll be no corporate income tax phasing out mm. completely. Mm. They're close to phasing out the individual income tax as well. Oh, Kentucky. Kentucky wasn't even on the playing field three weeks ago. The House the House passed a phase out to zero. I talked to the Senate leader. Mm. He's excited about going to zero. 
They've got the votes to override a Democrat governor's uh, veto if he wants to veto it. Um, so Kentucky is look is looking to phase down uh, to zero as as well. There's a, Oklahoma Governor Stitt um, has a very significant tax cut, but even more important than cutting taxes is he said in the state of the state, "Hey, there are eight states with nothing. Here's my tax cut. We got to get going towards zero. Mm. Uh, this is this year's tax cut." So. Even the guys who are just cutting taxes one time are looking to phase it out forever. Uh, Mississippi had an overwhelming vote in the House. Uh, uh, Phil Gunn, their uh, House leadership speaker, he's got a phase out to zero over 12 years. Mm. Uh, The House is looking to join. The governor, uh, Tate Reeves, is a big supporter of this in West Virginia. The Mm. Senate voted to phase down to zero. Uh, The governor supports it. House wants to start with a 10 percent cut. Not a bad start on, mm. on the way to zero. 10% is not a bad way to, to start that ball rolling. North Dakota, the House has voted to phase their 2.5% income tax to zero. Mm. Governor's generally supportive. House's uh, Senate's wondering about it. Uh, and so we're seeing some real movement there. South Carolina is beginning to move. The governor there in his state of the state said, we're going to zero. Because we're sitting between Florida at mm. zero at mm. North Carolina, which is careening towards zero and <laughs> growing every year, they cut the income tax for 10 years. And what happens? They get more growth and more jobs and sadly more revenue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, uh, North Carolina is going gangbusters. We're talking to Grover Norquist, who is the founder and president of Americans for Tax Reform. Now, Grover, you've got uh, so all these states are cutting taxes and flattening their tax rates. And here's the Bidens that still cling to the idea of taxing rich people and raising the tax on corporations and raising the international tax burdens on corporations. So we've got to integrate now. We need some flat tax reform uh, at the federal level, and we need to integrate that with the idea of a balanced budget. We need to do both at the same time, it seems to me. Absolutely. And the best way to get something done in Washington is to do it in 10 states. That's how we got welfare reform. That's how we got term limits on committee chairs, uh, because we were doing term limits at the state level. Uh, If you get 10 states, that's how we got right to try to allow people with uh, deadly diseases to be able to have access sooner to drugs that they need, uh, because 40 states passed laws to allow it, even though the federal government wasn't there. So I love the idea of surrounding Washington, D.C. with good examples that work. So that senators and congressmen from states with flat rate taxes, Illinois has got a flat rate tax. Illinois has a single rate tax. So does Massachusetts. Hmm. Before I immigrated to the United States, I used to live in Massachusetts. Hmm. And uh, that's a, that, because they have a single rate tax, it's difficult to raise. You'd think that Illinois would have a 10% rate. It's like four. They're, in Massachusetts, hmm. it's 5.1. Uh, hmm. Why? Because a single rate tax means when the politicians want to spend more money, they have to look at everybody at once and say, I'm taxing all of you for my good idea. Mm. We all put our hands up to ours and say, then we're all listening. What's your good idea? Well, it's not that good. Mm. I'll go away. Um, did, did Ryan's plan have a tax component? I'm- uh, it, it was a spending plan to get spending down. Once you've got that, you can, using reconciliation, take all that lovely savings into the future and bring taxes down. Right, 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 right. Well, I think we baked into the cake for generations to come. I think we need to start talking this stuff up. Okay, Absolutely. I really do. You know, I, I mean, I, I think we've beaten the Build Back Better. I, I think we saved America and killed that bill. But I think we need to go on the offensive. 
Grover and Absolutely. really start talking about this budget reform and tax reform. Anyway, folks, that was Grover Norquist, founder and president of Americans for Tax Reform. Larry Kudlow will be back in just a few minutes. Thank you, Grover. Great stuff. Thank you, Larry. Cudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Cudlow Show. One of the things I want to wrap up on with Grover Norquist's terrific rundown of all the tax cutting and flat tax reform and balanced budget reform coming out of the states and circulating in Washington, these are pro-growth measures. We need pro-growth measures. The Biden administration is essentially anti-growth. They want income and wealth redistribution. They do not want growth and prosperity. They may talk about higher wages and so forth, but they look at that in terms of class warfare, pitting the rich against the poor. The fact of the matter is a rising tide will always lift all boats and I had uh, interviewed Mark Levin on the Kudlow show on the biz- on Fox Business this week. And one of the points that Mark made over and over again is that the radical left, the woke left that is governing in Biden's Washington today, these are degrowth people. These are people that do not believe in free market capitalism or free enterprise capitalism. They agree they favor socialism or American Marxism uh, as the title of Mark Levin's book. And they all want to degrowth. They don't care one whit about uh, the prosperity arguments that supply siders like myself have made, that Ronald Reagan made, that Donald Trump made. It's all about degrowthing the economy by moving to a socialist, centrally planned, overregulated economy. It's central planning. You don't buy the means of production anymore. You just run the economy out of Washington, D.C. through the regulatory octopus, as I call it, whose tentacles reach out to the economy vis-a-vis all of these federal agencies. That's how they've stopped the energy independence, using FERC and the Interior Department, the Energy Department, the EPA. They basically stopped drilling. They've stopped permitting. They've stopped pipelining. And that's part of the degrowthing. And they want to raise taxes on the most productive, successful uh, entrepreneurs. They want to raise taxes on corporations. And this class warfare stuff is uh, degrowth, central planning. It's right out of Friedrich Hayek's road to serfdom. And, you know, the stuff that Grover was talking about, combining a balanced budget with flat tax reform, would restore growth so we can get back to three to four percent growth and if we have stable prices as poor steve forbes we would have ourselves one heck of a strong america and boy we need a strong america at home in order to have a strong american freedom and democracy abroad and defeat xi and defeat putin anyway we're going to take a quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some stock market work on the other side. 
The conflict between Russia and Ukraine is going to have a direct impact on your wallet. So Fox News, CNN, and other major news outlets reported that inflation would shoot past 10% if Russia invades Ukraine. It happened. How does that impact us? Russia is the third largest oil producer globally. When Trump left, oil was only $40 a barrel. Today, it's $100. Economists expect $120 to $150 a barrel. Biden shut down the XL pipeline, which would have given us 830,000 barrels a day. How does it feel every time you go to the pump or grocery store? What is this inflation doing to your retirement accounts? Call Monetary Gold and ask for the Rudy Giuliani special. They'll give you their protection guide free. Call Monetary Gold at 1-888-204-2141. That's 1-888-204-2141. Or visit monetarygold.com. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, you can live stream us. LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com, if I have that right. Runs throughout the country and around the world and throughout the solar system. Please join us during the week. Fox Business. Name the show's Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. All right, let's do some stock market work. Big, big week for stocks. My goodness, the Dow, the Dow Jones 30 was up 1,811 points. Wow. The NASDAQ was up 1050. The S&P 500, 259 points, despite all the things going on around the world. Nonetheless, interest rates went up this week. The 10-year note, 215. Oil came back down some. I mean, peak was about 125 or 130. Crude oil, West Texas crude, 104. Brent crude, 107, called 108. The DXY dollar index off a little bit, but still holding okay. And the five-year tips inflation break-even is all the way up to 359. So inflation is still very much in the air. And um, the Federal Reserve, I guess what I've talked about, the Federal Reserve, they raised their target rate by one quarter of 1%, which is pretty pathetic given the fact that the CPI is rising by 8%, the PPI by 10%, and import prices by 11%. Okay. What a brave Fed. Yeah, not. Anyway, let's bring in our distinguished guest, Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services and um, Chicago's leading restaurateur, and Mike Ozanian, assistant managing editor of Forbes Media and co-host of Forbes Sports Money on the Yes Network. Gentlemen, welcome. Um, I w I'm just going to assert a view that one reason... The stock market did so well is that the Federal Reserve is not launching anything remotely like anti-inflation type money. And in fact, not only did they have this pathetic one quarter of 1% rise in rates, which still leaves the real Fed funds rate at whatever, minus seven and a half, uh, but they're actually going to continue to buy bonds. They are not shrinking their portfolio. They are continuing to buy bonds. I guess maybe through May or some damn thing. 
but I find that pretty pathetic. So let me begin with my great friend, Jim Urio. How do you read this, Jim Urio? Well, you said the word pathetic, and I, I love that. And we've been talking about that for a year. The time for the Fed to have backed out, stop buying bonds, and start normalizing short-end rates was a year ago. And it was obvious to everybody but them. Now, here, here's something where I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I still think they're supposed to get out of the way. Here's what concerns me now. We're forgetting that the crude oil rally from $70 to a you know, high of 130 um, that's a tightening. You know, that's that's bringing money out of the economy too. So that has me a little bit concerned. I still think they should be more aggressive. I'm not jumping out of the camp yet. I just have some. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit interested in how this is going to play out because if the if, if the one cure for high prices is high prices, particularly if wage growth doesn't follow it. And I, and I want people to make more money. I'm not trying to sound like a bad guy. But if wage growth is not following, and it's clearly not, despite the fact that they're trying all these measures to try to force wages higher that don't seem to be working, all they seem to be is an economic uh, detriment. Um, but I am starting to think that there is a light at the end of the tunnel for inflation coming down. And at the same time, I still think the Fed should the, – the fact that they're buying bonds is completely ludicrous. I, I don't understand that at all. Into a red-hot housing market, they're buying mortgage bonds for a year and a half. I, I, that just – it's a different kind of crazy that I'm not – I don't understand. So well, hang on a second. What are you telling me? What's I'm telling your bottom line? No, the bottom <laughs> line is that – I think the Fed needs – that's the most important thing that the Fed gets out. I'm not as worried about runaway inflation as I was before. It already ran away, I guess is what I'm saying. How's that? And, you know, I don't I – don't, I mean, there's got to be a point in crude where demand destruction genuinely happens. When I start hearing people talk about their discretionary driving, maybe cutting back on it, people in, you know, relatively upper income brackets, to me that means that, – that's something. I just I – mean, it means I'm nervous about it. All right. Michael Zanian, what do you think? I'm more pessimistic than my good friend, Jim. Um, I think the Fed's policy is backwards. I don't think it should be tinkering with the Fed's fund rate. I think that's just going to hurt bank stocks' profits. It's causing the real earnings yield to sink. Uh, and I think they should have taken the Paul Volcker playbook. I think they should have started selling bonds and uh, excuse me, and, uh, and, and shrinking their balance sheet. And I I'm very concerned about inflation. I think it's going to get a lot worse. And uh, I think corporate profits still growing, I think, as an impact of coming out of the pandemic and, and higher margins have held up, which is uh, in part kept the stock market afloat. Um, but I'm concerned that as that wanes uh, and price earnings ratios continue to contract, uh, the overall market's going to go down. I think the Fed is operating in an alternative universe. If they think inflation's going to go down, I don't understand that, Jimmy Orio. I mean, they the, the balance sheet is still growing. They're still injecting cash into the economy. They're accommodating the oil price hike. They're not stopping it. They're accommodating it. It will spread to the re all these other prices. Yeah, you yes. I, I don't mean to – I'm not trying to – and I, I agree with both you and Mike. 
I just what I'm saying is if you guys think it's a 10 of 10 on the inflation is going to runaway scale, I've recently recalibrated down to an eight starting to feel a little better does not make does not make me the rosiest guy on the planet. I think they're doing everything wrong. I just finished reading an article before I got on with you guys about how Italy just passed a five billion dollar spending package to try to lower oil prices. And they're going to raise that money by taxing the oil companies. So the question is, will will governments do the exact opposite of what Mm. should be should have any sort of efficacy in trying to bring prices down? The answer to that is probably yes, sadly. But we are coming up to an election here and they might be scared to do stupid things going into election. And that's my that's a hope of mine, too. I just have a little bit of hope, not a lot, if that makes sense. Why did the stock market go up uh, 1800 points this week, Mike Ozanian? I uh, two reasons. I think uh, profits are still coming in strong. Mm. Uh, it's not growing at the rate it was over the last year. Uh, so I think that's very favorable. Um, and uh, I think it had fallen quite precipitously. You know, uh, year to date, the market has lost a lot of money, a tremendous amount of value. And uh, I also think that. Uh, you know, as it rebounds from there, we saw that, look, the dollar in itself, okay, which I'm very, uh, I believe very strongly in a stable and strong U.S. dollar for our economy and the market, I think we know is very weak in itself because of what's happening with prices. But as Jim pointed out, <laughs> as crazy as our policies have been, other countries are doing crazier policies. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> so, right. I, so I think relative to other currencies, the, the dollar is pretty good. And I, and I think that also is reflected in the stock market. Yeah, well, the dollar, right, the, because they're inflating perhaps faster than we are. The dollar is losing value against broad commodity indexes. That's always a warning exactly. signal. I want to raise, uh, it's interesting to me, retail sales up Eight, almost 18% year on year. Uh, that's roughly 10.5% prices, 6.5% in real sales. Industrial production was actually pretty strong. Nobody pays much attention to that index, but they should. It's running above 7% uh, year on year. So, I mean, the economy is uh, still reasonably strong, even while inflation is reasonably strong. So, Jim Urio, um, something's going to give here. Something's going to give. The Federal Reserve is in an alternative universe thinking that the inflation rates are going to come down. I, I mean, I guess that's my biggest concern. And they're going to be forced into a much tougher, more aggressive position. Sure. And I'm perfectly fine with that. I can live with that completely. But what I will say is there, and you just mentioned some things, retail sales going higher. We can't forget that. I know we've, over the last year and a half, we keep thinking that we're coming out of this dark period in our history that's encompassed the last two years. But I I genuinely believe we really are now. I think people are tired of the nonsense, people tired of the hypocrisies, and people are going out. And there might... There might be some level of pent-up demand, not, and, there, and the, the, higher, the, the higher wage people and the higher asset people have made lots and lots of money as you know, these government policies have transferred wealth from the middle to the top. You know, the four richest people in America are $250 billion richer in the last two years. So people, when you inject a lot of money into the economy, there's going to be people who have money and spend it. And I think as the weather gets nicer apart, around a broad part of the country, that there's going to be some wildly aggressive economic activity. So that 
that's the good side. I don't mean to sound rosy because all I'm saying is you guys are pointing out the bad parts. Great. So somebody needs to say that it's not just all bad, if that makes well, sense. Well, look at Matt. I'm going to go back to these production numbers. Manufacturing increased 1.2% in February. That's a big number. Uh, it's up 4.5% the last three months annualized, 7.5% the last 12 months. Business equipment, which is very important, up almost 2%, 1.9%. And it's up 5% the last three months and 6% the last 12 months. So uh, for whatever reason, the economy is responding to all the monetary and and government spending stimulus. There's no question about that. Uh, but inflation, I mean, th- th- those are not conditions under which inflation is going to go down. And I, mean, I agree. No, and my, not, yeah, my concern with this. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry, Jim, please go ahead. No, 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 I wanted you to take it too, because I know I agree that it doesn't seem like they're going to go down when you put it that way. And then you throw in the fact, like we said earlier, that they are still buying bonds. This mm-hmm. is the craziest thing ever was the bond buying thing and into the teeth of just prevailing inflationary winds. They just kept buying bonds and they still do today. But Mike, you can take it from there. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the industrial production uh, is a very positive thing. And, you know, like Jim is saying, we don't want to just harp on the bad stuff. But my con- and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, productivity. I-, I think productivity has held up fairly well. Uh, and I think that's held profits. Uh, and look, the bottom line is getting away from all the fancy terminology. Uh, the United States still makes the best products across the board in many, many different categories. I mean, you know, our workforce is fantastic. Let's not very, very innovative. Um, but my concern is, as Larry was mentioning, the retail sales, due to this crazy Fed policy of raising rates instead of shrinking its balance sheet, as interest rates, as the Fed funds rate goes up, what's going to happen to consumer spending, I think it's going to hurt consumer spending. I think it's going to hurt retail sales. Uh, so I don't, you know, the misery index has done a pretty good job of predicting which way the market's going. And, and if you look at the misery, uh, misery index, it, it's, it went from what, 11.7% in February, uh, you know, inf- uh, inflation and unemployment. And, you know, the forward PE as the mi- misery index has risen has come to from 19 to 18. And I see the misery index only going up from here over the next six to nine months. So I, I think that's a bearish sign on spending at consumer side, and I think it's a bearish sign for the overall stock market. It's going to take a year before monetary policy really impacts the economy. It could take longer than a year. I mean, Friedman taught us monetary log- lags are long and variable. But let's call it a year. Um, so, you know, you could have a very strong economy for the remainder of this year, even as the consumer price index and other measures of inflation can keep going up. I mean, we're, pro- we're going to hit 10 percent inflation. And the yeah, my concern is they don't believe in monetary policy. I don't think Powell believes in monetary policy. I don't think he believes in what Milton Freeman taught us. He doesn't. I, I don't think he believes in any of that stuff. And yeah. that's that's my big concern. And, you know, we could sit here and debate the severity and the timing of it. But I don't think either three of us would debate that it is going to be severe at some point because of the Fed's folly. And, and I don't see that as good for stock prices. 
All right. Let's let's take a quick break. We're talking to Jim Urio, TJM Institutional Services, Mike Ozanian of Forbes, and uh, Sports Money on Yes Network. I'm Larry Kudlow. I want to know whether we're going to have another 1,800-point rally in the Dow Jones uh, next week. We never know. So let's take a break, and we'll come right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we're talking stocks with Jim Urio of TJM Institutional Services and Mike Ozanian of uh, Forbes Media and uh, Sports Money, the Yes Network. So, gentlemen, um, I'll start with Jim Urio. Are we going to have another increase of 1,800 points uh, this coming weekend? No, I don't think so. And I, I think there's something to keep in mind from a broad perspective, too. At the beginning of this year, we pretty much everyone who I know and respect said, we're, as we normalize rate policy, it is it is a necessity that the equity markets have to reprice and there's going to be volatile times. And I know that we along that way, we've blamed it on Russia and Ukraine and things like that. But I think the reality of it is we still have to get used to rate policy. So I think there's more volatility. I don't think it's the big one. I do believe what the um, what the yield curve is telling me and that there's a potential for a, a recession and a small one. And again, people who have been around as long as the three of us have, when we think of recessions, we think of 2008 and we think of, um, you know, something that's terrible. It doesn't have to be terrible. I think it's not the end of the world if we have one too. So I don't think the stock market problems are over yet. I'm, I still am more in uh, metals, um, you know, silver, gold, platinum, palladium, real estate, things like that, things that, I think the Fed is being too, despite what I said earlier, which I think was a little bit, a tiny bit misunderstood and probably my fault, but I still think the Fed is obviously too loose and I still want to be long those things. I'm still trying to think what you did say earlier. Maybe it was Saturday morning. I was babbling a little bit. I'd like to apologize for that, and I will clean it up going forward. There's a lot going on. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, Mike Ozanian, uh, bullish or bearish on stocks now? I am, but I still think certain pockets are going to do well. Uh, I think people in this country are starting to realize that our defense is woefully underfunded. Mm -hmm. uh, and I like the mix of defense stocks that are really good on the tech side. Mm -hmm. So, for example, one stock I'd go to, if I may, is Raytheon Technologies, which merged mm -hmm. two years ago with United Technologies. These guys are into missiles, defense. They own Pratt & Windy, which is a, a great, great, great aircraft brand. 2% uh, dividend yield. Uh, I, I think this is a good stock to buy and to hold on to. I, I really think this company uh, is very, very well managed, and, it, and it's growing revenue even right now. So I, I like that stock. Other uh, defense stocks too? You know, there, there are, but I think this is my favorite. And, yeah. to, you know, piggyback on what uh, Jim was saying, I still think there's money to be made in commodities uh, given – uh, the monetary mess we're in right now and what's going to happen with inflation. So I still even like gold right now. I know gold hasn't been spectacular lately, but uh, I guess around 1900 bucks or so, I, uh, I still like gold. Be careful. Larry hates it when you like gold. I, I like gold a little bit, too. No, I, and uh, I did hear Mike say that at least something I said made sense about the commodities. I'll take that as a win. <laughs> well, gold is up. Let's see. I'm looking at this. Uh, spot price of gold is up 5%. 
year to date. It's up uh, 11% for the last 52 weeks, so gold's done pretty well. Um, what happens to oil prices, uh, Jim? What, what, okay. do you, what are you thinking on oil? So last time you and I talked was about two and a half weeks ago, and crude was trading about 104. And I said my inclination was that gold goes lower, but I wanted to see it go lower first. And in that time, now it's 103. So technically I'm right if we forget about the fact that it went up to 130 mm. in the week after I talked to you. But I still think I think crude – there's a cap for crude. We talked about this before. There's a lot of bad news that's priced into it and a tremendous amount of longs. And market position dictates the movement as much as anything else does. And I think that there's a lot of longs that need to be wiped out. I think if it goes back below 100, we could see $90 crude again. I'm not short it. I'm still long some of the names. But I'm, I, I do think that the, the rally is mostly over. And if it goes back below 100, I will get short it. Um, it's hard to figure, a serious point, whether the Russian supply of oil uh, coming onto the world market is coming down. I mean, I, I think it is because of the self-sanctions that are going on. I mean, I know some of the, some of the big oil companies have pulled back their investment uh, in Russian oil. You know, let's see, uh, Shell has, ExxonMobil has, um, I think BP has too. But in terms of the the flow of oil. I mean, they produce about 10 and a half million barrels. Has that come down? I mean, I, we, the import sanctions for the U.S., so that's 650,000 a day. That's, that's not a big number. I, I wonder about the rest of it. No, but the, and the problem with these things is, is it takes some time to gather the facts to see if it's really happening. And right now, I don't think it's clear. I've read several different pieces yeah. that, that make it unclear. So that's, what, that's why I hate, as a trader, I like thing, questions to be answered immediately, and sometimes you just can't answer them. And some sanctions, wherever they're implied or actually for real, it takes some time to, to play out. So the thing that we could have, and the, the, the best thing that could possibly happen is that they acquiesce domestically and allow and encourage, instead mm -hmm. of saber battling against crude oil companies. And that, to me, is one of the biggest mistakes we're currently making. Yes. Well, absolutely. There's no question yeah. about that. No question about that. Um, Michael Zanian, it, we just said less than a minute. Is the Ukrainian war affecting stocks in, in a significant way, in your judgment? No, I don't think it was based right. on what was happening to stocks and the right. economy before. Uh, as, as big a tragedy as it is, uh, I, I, I don't think so. Uh, I, I think you're right. I, I think, no, no, I think you're right. I think our problems are homegrown. Our issues are homegrown. Anyway, gentlemen, we appreciate it. I, I got to take. We t Republicans take Congress in the next election and we become energy independent again. Yes, there we go. Jim Murio and Mike Ozani. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Join us during the week, Fox Business. The name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And now we're going to do some money in politics. We've got Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, Hill columnist, and Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury. So it's ladies' night out, ladies' morning night out, something like that. Anyway, kids, thank you for coming on. You know, this uh, we you know we, I have to start with Hunter Biden. It's just way too much fun. I must start with Hunter Biden. The New York Times has acknowledged that he did have a laptop computer, and it was in a repair shop in Delaware. 
And all the stuff in there, I'm going to start with Monica Crowley on this. All the stuff in there about the corruption, Russia, Ukraine, China, giving his father money, all that stuff was real. It wasn't Russian disinformation. And I got to read, hold on. Uh, this is such way, way too much fun. But they've asking, uh, they asked um, Madam Saki if she still held to the disinformation argument. And she said, I'd point you to the Department of Justice and also to Hunter Biden's representatives, Saki said. He doesn't work in the government. And then they asked her again, and she said, I'd point to the Department of Justice and Hunter Biden's representatives. And then here's the one I love. I'm a spokesperson for the United States. He doesn't work for the United States. <laughs> well, I guess that's strictly true. So, Monica, what do you make of this? 51 intelligence experts refuse to apologize for discrediting the true Hunter Biden story. What do you make of this? Yeah. Hi, Larry. It's great to be with you and Liz today. Look, this is one of the more despicable examples of the loathsome creatures that populate the state. The, the 51 intelligence officials that, that you cited uh, were contacted by the New York Post who broke the story in October 2020. They reported the truth at the New York Post. They reported it when it mattered several weeks before the presidential election, when voters had every right to know about the truth about one of the two presidential candidates. And yet big tech conspired with big corporate media to bury the story, not just bury it, but kill it and discredit it entirely. You mentioned Jen Psaki. At the time, Larry, Jen Psaki tweeted that this was Russian disinformation. <laughs> so she had no problem. No problem back then lying about it. And now she doesn't want any part of it. I speak on behalf of the United States. Well, look, we, we, this shows the depth of the corruption that we are dealing with here. And by the way, Hunter Biden is the most blackmailable person on the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. And we have not seen him. The White House will not comment about him. This corruption and rot goes so deep, Larry, that it is going to take a lot and a very long time to uproot it. Liz Peek, I'm perfectly happy to have you speak for the United States. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Anytime. Uh, there was a poll I saw, I think it was Wall Street Journal poll, uh, that reminded us something like... Um, 8% of those who voted for Biden wouldn't have voted for him if they'd known about this or if they thought this was a real thing. I mean, this this story really, really may have impacted the election. I don't see how it could not have impacted the election, and that's why they suppressed it, Larry. If they thought this was sort of just a minor hiccup in terms of the reputational risk to Joe Biden or something like that, I think they would have covered this story. I think what's really worrisome here, and I think Republicans will get to this, uh, if they take control of Congress, how do you change this behavior? How do you make sure that big tech in conspiracy, and it was a conspiracy with big media, can suppress and distort the news? I think this is something, you know, Americans really need to go to the mat about. Freedom of speech is what we're talking about, disinformation. 
uh, from the liberal elites in charge of our country and our media and our academia and big tech. It is a cabal, and they are really forming American opinion. And when it comes to meddling in an election, I thought we heard from Democrats how, in, how a terrible thing that was to do. Well, it is a terrible thing, and they did it. It's, it is the fact, Leslie Marshall, I think, the other night said, well, most people voted against Donald Trump, not for Joe Biden. There is certainly an element of that, but Joe Biden was pictured as honest. He yeah. was kind of the adult in the room after, yeah. uh, you know, sort of treacherous uh, and, and combustible Donald Trump. This really changes people's opinion, or at least it should, about who Joe Biden is. And I don't think we are anywhere near the end of this story. And that, I think, is what's interesting. Yeah, you know, I agree with you. And it's interesting that so the Bidens are talking about the conspiracy to price gouge on yeah. oil and gasoline. <laughs> How about the conspiracy to stop freedom of speech and information? How about that? Cons there is a cabal. You're correct. And Monica, you're, you've been in the foreign policy realm for a long time. You got this, you know, John Brennan, James Clapper, Michael Hayden, Michael Morell. I mean, these were guys that held big jobs, right, for the for the uh, CIA and the DNI, and they just lied. They just lied and then took part in this conspiracy. Yeah, so the New York Post, which broke the story in October of 2020, several weeks before the election, those 51 intelligence officials, including Brennan, Clapper, Hayden, a whole slew of them, they signed a letter talking about how the Hunter Biden laptop and emails were likely Russian disinformation. Right. These people who held the highest lever, uh, controlled the highest levers of power in our intelligence agencies, manipulated intelligence for partisan political gain. In other words, to help Joe Biden win the election and hurt Donald Trump and get him to lose the election. That's what they did. These people are liars. They are treacherous. And frankly, they are treasonous. Our intelligence agencies are supposed to be non-political. They're supposed to sit above politics because their job is to protect the security and safety of the American people and of America's interests around the world. And instead, they were acting as political operatives. And I can't tell you how dangerous, Larry, that is to the mm. fabric of this country. You know, it's against the law for the CIA or the NSA to do domestic spying. And yet, guess what? They weren't just doing domestic spying, but they were engaged in partisan political behavior. This is outrageous, and frankly, they all belong in prison. Yeah, see, Liz, that's um, it's really important. These were the same people, you know, Clapper and Brennan and Mike Morell. What was he, the deputy CIA director, some such thing? They were the ones who were pushing... The whole, you know, Russian hoax versus Trump, which was proven to be completely false. They, this was the same crowd. And yeah. um, I think you got a problem here. I guess you question, do you think the Justice Department is actually going to look into this? I mean, I don't. I mean, should well, the Republicans push for some kind of special counsel here? Something needs to be done. I mean, Monica's right. I, Something needs to be done. I agree, and I think the special counsel route is probably the most likely thing that will happen because 
if you're in control of Congress, that is something that you can agitate for and push for. And it maybe at some point Merrick Garland will have no choice but to step up. I mean, my view, Larry, frankly, is I'm astonished that the FBI is even investigating it. That's how far gone I think the leadership of the FBI is. Now, maybe, you know, this is sort of the rank and file FBI kind of doing their job. I hope so. But you kind of uh, can imagine that the reason the New York Times published this, why did they do this? After all these many months of silence, my view is because Hunter Biden is likely to be indicted for tax fraud or some sort of money laundering or whatever. And then they're going to look stupid. They're going to look stupid that they didn't cover it. They had no preamble for that indictment. They sat on it. I think at that point, their newsroom said, wow, we got to get ahead of this. You know, we have to acknowledge that there were sort of red flags raised. uh, And that's the only reason they did it. I suspect they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. One more more thing here, Monica, you know, uh, Joe Biden received a lot of money from some of these schemes. Um, I don't know. He should give that money back. I mean, he's going to be culpable here. And um, that's got to be part of the investigation. I mean, what Bobolinsky said, you know, Bobolinsky was the only truth teller in this. Everybody dismissed him, too. But, um, you know, all these quotes, you know, 10 percent for the big guy. Right. That was Joe Biden. That stuff's got to come out. That stuff's got to be fleshed out completely. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I agree with Liz. I think. Perhaps the career prosecutors at DOJ are closing in on Hunter and some of this. So I agree that the New York Times is like, well, holy crap, we better get in front of this or we are going to look like we've been covering for them, which they have been. But you're exactly right. In one of those emails, 10 percent for the big guy. Well, who's the big guy? Obviously, the big guy is Joe Biden. Keep in mind that there is nobody now who is more compromised, particularly on Russia and Ukraine, where so much of this money came flowing into the Biden crime family. Um, And now we've got this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Joe Biden is is in the middle of this in, in, in many ways, and yet he's completely compromised. We have a commander in chief who can't deal with a global conflict because of the money that corrupt money and dark money that's flowed into his family over many years from that part of the world. So this investigation needs to be fully vetted. And I tweeted yesterday, Larry, that because Joe Biden is so irredeemably compromised, he needs to be impeached and removed from office. Mm. We cannot have a president who mm. cannot function on the mm. world stage because he's crippled in this way. I, and I would add to that, Larry, can I add one thing? When Monica said earlier that, that Hunter Biden was the most blackmailable person on earth, I would disagree. I think Joe Biden is that person because whatever they may have on, Joe, on Hunter Biden certainly reflects on Joe Biden. And as you have pointed out, there seemed to be enormous uh, commingling of their funds and right. their business activities. That's what one of the things I'd like to know, Liz, just from, you know, you and I are sort of financial people. Has that money stopped flowing? Yeah. And if it did, when did it stop flowing? You know, I mean, somebody's got to figure that out. And Hunter Biden was, you know, not a registered agent for a foreign government. He didn't do any of that type stuff. I mean, I'd I'd like to know that. I'd like to know about their bank accounts. I'd like to know what's up with their bank accounts, really. Ben Psaki was asked whether Hunter Biden had sold his Chinese interests and refused to answer. Yeah. 
Yeah, and this is right after Biden just spent two hours talking yeah. to Xi about Lord knows, who knows. Anyway, let's take yeah, a quick and, break. And you know what? You, you know what? The, everything they accused Donald Trump of doing, they themselves That's are guilty right. of. Yeah. yeah, except in this case, it was true. Except in this case, it was right? true what the Bidens That's did. Right. Anyway, all right, Liz Peek, Monica Crowley, we're going to take a quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. When we come back on the other side... I want to talk about something that the media doesn't want to cover, and that is an Iran deal, an Iran deal with a $10 billion carve out for a Russian construction company to build a nuclear facility in Iran. Wonderful story. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking money and politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and Hill columnist, and Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, and I'll just say woman about town, author, columnist, commentator, et cetera, et cetera. How about that? Women about town. Anyway, um, one of the most underreported stories right now is the Iranian story. Here we've got Iran, death to America, Death to Israel. Uh, Trump sanctioned them heavily. The sanctions have been lifted by the Bidens. And meanwhile, they're at the negotiating table. Russia is negotiating on behalf of the United States. Another incredible part of the story. Um, Saudi Arabia won't return Biden's phone calls. Uh, Iran is a mortal enemy of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has a checkered story, but they are American allies in the Middle East. So, ladies, I I do not understand this. I don't know how this is possible. Uh, There's a carve-out for this Russian construction company to build, they say, a a, a civil nuclear reactor. I don't believe a word of that. Um, There may be not only $10 billion for that. Some people are reporting $11 billion for the return of four hostages, but lifting of the sanctions is worth much, much more. We probably provide more financial assistance to Iran than we will to the Ukraine, okay? So I'll begin with you, Monica. Uh, I do not understand this. Uh, I think this is one of the worst things I've ever seen in, in, in American foreign policy history. Yeah, it really is. So a couple of days ago, President Biden referred to Vladimir Putin as a war criminal. That's on one hand. And yet, on the other hand, he's engaging Putin and his regime to negotiate a reentry into the Iran nuclear deal and all of these other aspects that, that go along with diplomacy that we can't carry out with Iran on our own. So which is Putin? Is he the horrendous war criminal, or is he the great effective diplomat that the United mm. States is using in, in this deal? Um, look, you can't have it both ways, and yet this administration is doing it to Putin's benefit. When you talk about Iran, you're talking about the greatest state sponsor of terror on the face of the earth. They continue to target America and America's interests, including just last week when they sent missiles flying over the U.S. consulate in Iraq. And yet now we want to release tens of billions of dollars to them, lift the sanctions, reward them for their bad behavior. It doesn't make sense, Larry, unless you take a step back, look at the bigger picture, and realize that this administration is only interested in one thing. It's all about strategic retreat for the United States and managed decline. 
When you understand it in that frame, then you understand that they are interested in rewarding America's greatest enemies and bringing America down. You know, Liz, another part of this is declassifying the Revolutionary Guard from terrorists to non-terrorists. It's the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, which basically runs the military state of Iran. I mean, it's a Marxist military state, these mullahs. Don't really run that place, but they're the one. I mean, Trump killed. Trump had Soleimani killed, uh, which was a brilliant act. Uh, Democrats criticized him for it. Biden criticized him for it, but it was exactly the right thing to do. And now they're going to declassify him. But even more, we why would we consciously desert our friend Israel, Liz? That's what I don't get. I mean, is there any doubt that? Israel is our great ally and Iran is our enemy. I I just don't understand it. Larry, I I think you're completely right. But let's go back to uh, when Obama pressed to have this agreement in the first place. It made no sense then. And it's actually much, much worse now, because now, first of all, Netanyahu exposed to the world evidence that Iran had actually been working on building a bomb. That Mm. uh, evidence at several sites in Iran was then basically not uh, made available to the IAEA inspectors who are supposed to keep tabs on what they're actually doing. Only two weeks ago, in the midst of the current negotiations, did the head of the IAEA actually be permitted to go and visit that. And frankly, we've not heard about that. We've not heard whether or not it was true. We all know it's true. We all know that they didn't let people in to investigate because there was evidence that they were building a bomb. Now, the timeline that we're actually supposed to be protecting the world against Iran's control of a nuclear weapon is two and a half years. So it's not even 10 years, which it was under Obama. The deal was so bad then, remember, that Obama didn't even present it to Congress. The same thing is happening now. The The only possible explanation for this is, first of all, Biden is ruled 100 percent by a resolute need to undo everything President Trump did, whether or not it was successful. That includes, unfortunately, putting Iran in the penalty box and forging new relationships between the UAE and a host of other Gulf countries and Israel as something that was obviously an enormous diplomatic breakthrough. They mm. gave the Trump administration no credit for it. They're, they're basically dissolving any momentum there. From what mm. I understand, there's very little going on uh, in an effort to what? Maybe produce another get more oil in the market. So Joe Biden's ratings go up. It is really, it is the most appalling, I agree with you, the most appalling diplomatic fiasco, anti-American measure I've ever seen in my lifetime. I don't understand it. And I think it's heinous. I don't know why. I don't know why this is such an underreported story. I mean, it's nowhere. I'm looking, I mean, I've read, I read the print edition of the Wall Street Journal uh, nowhere there. It's not on the website. Uh, the, the journal is editorialized against it, but there's no day-to-day coverage of this or hardly any. And- because it reflects terribly on the Biden administration. So nobody, by the way, the Wall Street Journal, and we all know this, the, the reporting is increasingly left-leaning. Yeah. The editorial page is conservative. Yeah. But the truth is the mass media doesn't want to report it because it looks ridiculous. Yeah, I think that's... And Monica, one other point, the left, which runs Biden's Washington, 
The left hates Israel. I mean, isn't that part of this? They've always hated Israel, and now it's coming. Yes. In. Even you know, yes. Remember the, the remember the 2016 Democratic National Convention where the Democrats booed Israel every time oh, it was uh, mentioned. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there, there's a deep strain of anti-Semitism that runs through the Democratic Party now. You've got Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, who are constantly agitating against Israel, AOC, the Squad. Um, so yeah, it's definitely there. But the press, Liz is right, the press doesn't want to report it because they don't want to report anything that's going to be damaging to Joe Biden and the Democrats heading into the midterms. The problem is, if the reporting so far is correct, from what we've heard, is that they are close to a deal to reinvigorate the, the catastrophic nuclear deal, in which case, you know, it's going to be another foreign policy disaster of historic proportions, mm. and it's going to be one more thing to add to the momentum going into a Democratic bloodbath in November. I just don't, I mean, even the Biden, I mean, this is, they, I, this is just utterly indefensible. <laughs> anyway, I'm stuttering. Liz Peake, thank you. Monica Crowley, Thanks, thank you, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Join us, Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, and I'll see you next weekend on radio. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.